earned it coming in here to be with each other. I have to start this whole thing by saying how extremely proud I am of this church. There was great consternation this morning. We were wondering, should we do church? Should it happen? Then Doug walked in the door early, like over an hour early for church from Endicott. And I said, if Doug shows up, we got to have church. And then, and then Bridger and Rochelle, all the way from Minnesota, drove here to come to church this morning. We'll see you next week. And yeah, it, it's crazy. We got Becca. It's like old, old farmhands day. And then we've got, you know, it's just so awesome. And you guys all showed up to church on a day like today. So we were gathered for prayer, which was smaller than usual. And understandably so, and we were like, okay, here's our plan. We'll do worship up front. We'll just sit in the stools, and everybody can come up and gather around. And, and then we'll go on the backspace and make a circle of, like, ten chairs. And we'll have church back there today, and it'll be really great. And Anna, our wonderful media tech person, says there's not going to be 20 people here. And so we did an over-under. So those who voted under 20 people all owe me a donut. That's all I'm saying. I had faith. Yeah, I had faith. What? It has to be gluten-free. Yes, a gluten-free donut. Don't bring me a normal donut because that'd just be mean. That'd just be mean. Oh, so cool to have you guys here with us this morning. Um, so last week, we, we kind of looked, we, okay, two weeks ago, we looked backwards, right? We said, thank you, God, for the things you did in our church. Thank you for the things you did in our life. Then last week, we started looking forward. And uh, we looked forward, first of all, in terms of, anybody want to shout out the word? Somebody's got to have the word. Somebody's got to remember invitations. Good. I was like, I didn't just talk for nothing. Um, Invitations from God, that God is extending invitations to us, right? And invitations are really awesome because they they make us feel loved. They make us feel accepted. They make us feel welcomed and needed. And when we get invited to a party, we all like that. And so God comes to us with invitations. He doesn't come to us so much with commands and demands. And we think he does, but they're coming as invitations because God loves us. He really does. He really loves us, and he wants to invite us into something new. And we often think, okay, God's inviting me into being a better person. God's inviting me into behaving better. God's, he's not. He's inviting you into a deeper love relationship with him. When we were uh, at the uh, marriage retreat this weekend, one of the things that they would do at the lunch hour is we'd all be sitting there eating. And it's, it's really bizarre because you go in, and you know, you know how we often do food, right? We'll, we'll pray, and then we eat, right? So we get there, and they go, oh, just go through line. You get all your food, and you sit down, and you start eating, and you're talking. And all of a sudden, a nun walks up and rings a little bell. And everybody's quiet except for Jeff. But he catches on eventually, and everybody's quiet. And then, then she reads from a prayer book about blessing the food. And then everybody says amen, and then we keep eating. And this one prayer that she prayed, she said, God, we thank you that you never grow tired of us. It was like there was a moan at our table. It was really weird. It was like 10 of us in this little table, right? And I was like, oh, God, you never grow tired of us. Ah, maybe it was the context of a marriage retreat where we're working through our stuff. I don't know. I'm living with you for 20 years, and God never grows tired of you, but I did. Uh, but he never grows tired of you. And I was just so encouraged by that statement, that, that invitation that God loves you. is he, He's inviting you not because he wants you to do better 
or that he's expecting more out of you, but he's inviting you because he wants more for you, and he never grows tired of you or where you're at, and he's always inviting up. There's this, there's this book, Heinz Feet on High Places, and at the end of the, or maybe it's the Narnia book. Maybe it's the last Narnia book. It's one of the two, but in the end of it, they just keep calling. They say, further up and further in, Heinz Feet, High Places, they're They're going up inside of a waterfall, following a water droplet backwards, higher up, higher in, higher up, higher into the source of the water. And in Narnia, everybody's running into the kingdom of God in the last days, headed for the throne of God. And and Aslan, the lion, who is Jesus, is running ahead. He's like, further up, further in, further. And it's just joy and happiness. That's the invitation that God makes to us. Isn't that cool? We can go home now, right? Been encouraged. God never gets tired of you. But here I am um, at what I am thinking of the half, as the half point of my life. In a couple of weeks, I turned 45 years old. So if you flip that in half, that'll be 90. And so anything after 90, that's icing on the cake, right? That's just bonus time. But 90 is a pretty good, solid number. I'm about halfway there. And then my daughter also turns 18 on that day. So Emma, the one that sings over here, the really pretty one, she turns 18 on the same day. And so for Heidi and I, it's like this transition point where we move from, you know, young, young adult to younger, young adult. I'm not sure how that works, but for us, for, I don't want to call her a kid because she's not like a kid does, but you know, for all intents and purposes, 17 to 18, you go from kid to adult. So it's a transition point for that. And then at the end of February, Heidi and I are going to be married 20 years, which is, which I said at the marriage retreat is maybe a halfway point, but <laughs> It's like she can last another, she can give, put up with me for another 20 years. It'll be good. Uh, but 20 years, uh, which is another turning point. And so as I was pondering and processing God's invitation to me in this new year, he said a few things. I had three, which is kind of overachieving. Most of us can only do one or two. But I, I felt like God gave me three um, to show up, to let God be responsible for the results. And lastly is to revision, to rethink about the vision for my life. Like, not just for my church, not just for my career, but for the sort of life I want to live after 45. The sort of life I want to live as a father to a young adult. As the sort of life I want to live in the next 20, 40, 60 years of my marriage. That's overachieving too, right? 20, 40, 60, but you get the point, right? To revision, to reimagine who I want to be. The first half's been great. The first half's been awesome. And that makes me excited and hopeful for what's to come. So that's kind of what I want to talk about this morning, because I don't think that it's something that God's just speaking to me. While it's a specific word for me for this year, I think it's a specific word for you as well to think about what you want your life to look like in the years to come. What sort of character and nature do you want your marriage to have? What sort of atmosphere do you want your home to be? What sort of person do you want to be to your closest friends? What is God inviting you to be and do in the years to come? What is his vision for you? So vision, simply, simply stated, is this. It's, it's, it's a preferred sight, a, a per, preferred picture of the future. I stumbled right through my simple statement. Vision is a preferred picture of the future. And the reason I stumbled is because in my notes here, I wrote vision is a preferred vision of the future, which is, that doesn't make any sense. It's a preferred picture or image of the future. It's a hope of what could be, but isn't yet. It's, it's a bridge between where you stand now and where you will one day be. 
That's what vision is. So I'm going to talk about my daughter, Emma, again. She loves music. She's so good at picking good music. If you ever want to hear good music, go talk to Emma. She finds really good music, and she introduced Heidi and I to what is now one of my absolute favorite new, I guess they're a band. It's a hymn. It's a one person, and it does all kinds of amazing music. And I'm going to play, for some, play some of that for you in a few minutes. But it's called Sleeping at Last. Anybody familiar with Sleeping at Last? Yes, the Haws, because of Addie and Emma and, and Casey and, oh, Annie. There's Annie. It's like just her by herself. Okay, so write it down right now in your notes. Just write sleeping at last, and then you'll look at it and later, and you'll think, did I fall asleep during the sermon? What, what does this mean? But it's, it's a, an artist or a band or whatever they are, and they play this amazing, great music, and it has just super deep meaning. Some of it's just like atmospheric music, but some of it's got lyrics. And he took this tool called the Enneagram, if you're familiar with the Enneagram. And it's a, it's a tool kind of like the Myers-Briggs test or whatever that talks about your personality and who you are, but it's from a spiritual perspective. It talks about uh, how God's created you and what it looks like when you're really healthy and what it might look like if you're really unhealthy and where you go. And he took that and he wrote a, a song for each of the types. There's nine different types. And so Heidi and I, it's kind of fun because people are like, oh, I don't know what type I am in the Enneagram. I read it and I don't get it. I take the test. It doesn't feel right. And we're like, hey, listen to this album. And you listen to the album. And when you start crying, you've probably found your type. And so I, I, my type is a nine with, and this sounds so complicated if you never heard of it, but nine with a one wing. Okay, so I'm a type nine with a lot of heavy leanings toward a one. A nine with a one wing. And Heidi is a, is a, a one with a two wing, probably. <laughs> like, so, and we were listening to this, and I listened to the nine, and I'm just weeping. I'm like, this is stupid. Why is this song so sad? Uh, it tells me to wake up, which is one of God's calls to me this year. Show up. Wake up. Come alive. Heidi's is the one. And I really resonated with it, too, because there's this line in there, in the chorus. And it says this. I've got to find it so I get it right. I want to sing a song worth singing, and I want to write an anthem worth repeating. That is the heart of vision, that we could be a person, each of us could be a person that sings a song that's worth singing. Like, it's a good song. Our life was a great song. It's not just the song, like music song, but song in terms of story and, and action and characters and values, how we live our lives, the song worth singing, and an anthem a song of praise that's worth repeating. Other people look at our lives and say, ooh, I want to be like that. At the marriage retreat, one of the questions we asked was, hey, what, who are a few uh, marriages? No, we didn't, we didn't ask this question. It's in the vision thing we sent home with them. Who are a few marriages that you look at and say, oh, I want to be like that? Who are a few people for you? Like if you're single, who are a few people that you look at and go, oh, I want to be a single person that's like them. I want to I have that character. I want to be like them. I want to be like that. I want to have a song that's worth singing, an anthem that's worth repeating. And that's the heart of vision. But it's really strange how we often go about our lives not thinking much about the sort of song our life is singing or whether it's worth repeating or not. We, we get caught up in the mundane day-to-day, changing the oil, putting gas in the car, making a dinner, getting lunches, get the kids out the door for school, get our work done, get home. And it's like we get into this rhythm that's, it's totally devoid of a vision of who we could be or what we could become. And we get, we get numbed by the busy day-to-day and don't take much time to think about it. And that's where the song really caught me off guard. It caused me to think, is my life actually worth living? 
And that's not a suicidal statement. It's more of a statement of, when I look at it, is that what I want? And when I look at it, is that what God wants? When I look at it, is, is this what I hoped and what I longed for? Can I move towards something different? Jesus says that in him that there is life and life abundantly. He says there's a, it's a narrow road to the way. There's, the way is narrow, right, to heaven. The way is narrow to get to that abundant life. It's found in him and him alone. You can't go outside of him and get it. You have to go through Jesus to get there. But when you get on the other side of that, life is abundant. Say abundant. Okay, now say it like the word is like intended to be said, okay? Abundant. It's, there you go, all over the place. It's big, it's large, it's expansive, it's full, it's wonderful. And that's the sort of life I want to have on the other side of Jesus. You know, I want Jesus to bring me into heaven, but I want, I want more than just heaven. At, at, in our, our, this is really bizarre, I came across this uh, <laughs> Sufi Muslim nun of all people, and what she was famous for was this prayer. She was one of the first uh, Muslims to actually have a prayer talking about loving God for God's sake rather than what you can get. And her prayer was this, God, if I love you so that I can get out of hell, then let me have the hellfires. God, if I love you so that I can have heaven, then may heaven be held for me. But if I love you for you, may I have all of the life that you offer me. That's abundant life. That's a vision for living in God in such a way that we walk in this expansiveness. And that's the vision that I want to have for my life. And I hope that you want to have for your life. You're like, wait a minute. You're supposed to be preaching a sermon, Pastor Jamie. When are you going to get to the Scripture? I will get to a Scripture, and I'm going to encourage you from Scripture, but we're going to take some time and actually think about the vision for your life first, okay? So if you're like, where's the Bible? (laughs) It's coming. I'll get there. Thinking about vision, for me, it's been a journey. Thinking about, like, what is my vision and what do I hope for? But when I was in my teens and 20s, my vision was what I would kind of call not that sort of vision. Does that make sense? Like, I just looked at everybody else, and I said, I don't want to live like that. My dad's, like, living his life and feeling pretty proud of himself, and I look at him and being a critical monster of a teenager— I don't want to live like you. Why would I want to go to church like that? Why would I want to be like that? Church isn't, you know, I look at the church, and I get critical of the church. The church, is, the church isn't following the Bible. The church doesn't look like the community in Acts chapter 2. The church doesn't do, I'm not going to have a life like that. That was my form of vision when I was in my teens and 20s. And it's not very nice. It's kind of actually nasty. It rejects the wisdom of others that have gone before. It's critical. It's immature. And worst of all, there's no clear alternative life, right? All I see is what I'm not, what I'm not going to be. We can approach vision like that. I'm not going to be like that. But I think God's calling you to more. The second step I had in my vision process was I went from not like that to, oh, wait, like that. I want to live like that. And what I would do, though, is look at the successes of other peoples and other systems and try to incorporate that into my life so I could be like them. Whether it's, you know, the seven habits of a highly effective person or the tyranny of the urgent book or uh, a church model like the, the purpose-driven life or the purpose-driven church or whatever would, would bring success and value to me. I looked at people who had success and who I seemed to think was valuable, and I tried to live their life. I tried to be like them. And that's the main problem with it because it wasn't my life. 
It wasn't my unique calling. I was never, ever, never, ever able to measure up to their success. Wasn't doing it right. So, which leads me to my third version of vision, which is to ditch vision altogether. If I don't like what everybody else is doing, and I only like these few people, but I can't measure up to their standards, let's just forget it. And we'll just live life. Why do we have to worry about this anyway? Why do we have to think about what sort of life I want to have? Why don't I just live? And the problem with just living is this. There's no way to measure your progress. I have no idea if I have no vision for my life, if I'm a better person tomorrow than I was today. I have, if, I, if I have no vision for my marriage, I have no idea, to, no way to, to measure whether I love my wife more at the end of this year than I did at the beginning of last. I have no sense that my path is wandering further toward God. There's a, a passage in the Bible um, in the Old Testament that we used to quote all the time when it came to vision. We'd say this, without vision, the people will, let's see if anybody knows. Yes, perish. Oh, that's ominous, isn't it? If you don't have vision, you're going to die. It's a really odd translation, actually. The word perish in the Hebrew literally means to wander lost in the desert. So of course, if you wander lost in the desert for a long time, of course you're going to perish. But without vision, you wander aimlessly, lost. You have no sense of direction for your life. And so God's invitation to have vision for your life is an invitation to wander toward something. Not to live aimlessly, but to move toward him. I don't know about you, but I'm not interested in wandering aimlessly in life. I want to sing a song worth singing. I want to live and write an anthem worth repeating. So what is the biblical vision that God has for us? When God creates Adam in the book of everybody's favorite book, my favorite book. When God creates Adam, he creates something unique. He creates all the other creatures first, planets, stars, all that stuff, all the the animals that swim in the sea and walk on the earth. creates all those things first, and then he creates Adam with a special and a unique purpose. The God of the universe, the creator, has a unique goal for Adam. And that's to enter into a very special relationship, a covenant with him. God desires that in Adam, creation should become related to the creator in a new way. God wants to know you deeply and to be known by you, to be known and fully loved. To be known and fully loved by God is his vision for you. And as far as we are fully known and deeply loved, we can walk in this grace for ourselves and for others, and we discover that our life starts bearing witness to God's love to other people. As followers of Jesus, Pete Scazzaro says that our whole lives are meant to bear witness to God's love for the world. Married couples, they bear especially a witness to the love of God in its depth, the depth of Christ's love for the world. Our vows to one another focus and limit us to the loving to loving one person exclusively and permanently and deeply and intimately for the rest of our lives. Singles, you respect, you reflect the, the, the breadth and devotion of God's love. You're able to have deep relationships with lots of different people. It's wide, not just deep. And you're able to, um, you're able to uh, walk in purity and devotion to God and God alone. And it reflects God's love toward us. These two things give us a picture of how God lives toward us and the, the invitation that he has for us. So taking time to search our hearts and to search the heart of the Father to determine 
what sort of legacy, what sort of life that you want to live, the sort of song that you want to sing, it actually puts you in a position of being able to say one of my favorite phrases, I matter. You matter. Your marriage matters. Your family matters. Your life matters. Your work matters. Your heart matters. Your values matter. All of these things have weight and substance, and they matter to God. And because they matter to God and because you're related to God in such a way that your life is standing as a witness, they become a shining light to the world around you. It gives the Father space to speak value over your life as a unique witness to the depths of God's love. And it gives him permission to do what only he can do to transform your life. Not just your own life, but your whole family line. All the way back into history and forward into whatever it becomes. It's an invitation into transforming not just the world around you, but your direct related family. And that seems impossible. When you look at the mess of my, my genogram, my family line, it, I, I look at it and I say, all I should be handing out to people is dysfunction. All I should be handing out to people is brokenness. All I should be handing out to people is a train wreck of relational messes and, and insecurities and, and abuse and all sorts of just negative, horrible things that God just wants to send to hell. But guess what? I'm able to bring life. I'm able to bring encouragement. I'm able to bring right relationship. I'm able to love well. And because God has transformed me and he wants to transform you, as you live into the vision that God has for your life, the floor of your, your existence, the place where you can walk, can be, how do I say this? I would say it backwards. The ceiling of our lives can become our children's floor. There's what I'm trying to say. Do you guys get what I'm saying? They're going to be able to go beyond us. But it takes vision. It takes vision. The good news is, that the God that we serve eats impossible for breakfast. So what we think is impossible out here is totally possible in the kingdom of God. And he's inviting you to dream a little dream about how your life could be different. What do you want from life? I'm going to give you five minutes, and we're going to play the song that I was talking about, and then I'm going to come back with the biblical portion where I encourage you from God's word. <laughs> and I want you to take a piece of paper, if you have it. If you need a piece of paper, there's some extra right here. And I want you to answer this question. How do I want my life in God to look different six months from now? Let's make this achievable. Six months from now, how do I want my life to look different? What sort of song do I want my life to sing? What's the anthem that God's calling me toward that's an a anthem worth repeating? And we'll play the music, and then you'll all fall in love with sleeping at last. Hopefully you won't fall asleep, and I'll come back, and I'll encourage you from God's Word. So, Jesus, I pray that you speak to us now. Encourage our hearts and let us see just a glimpse of what our relationship with you could bring to fruition, to bring to fruit the, the soil that you're working in now, the, the vines that you're addressing, the, the grapes that are hanging, the fruit that is being produced, what that could create six months from now in our relationship with you and in our lives. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Amen. So how would you like your life to look different, your life with God to be different six months from now? Just write that down. Five minutes, we'll play the song, and I'll come back. That God has for you, he's, it's not a requirement. It's grace. He's an invitation to a life worth living and a song worth singing. Turn your Bibles into the book of Ephesians chapter 3. 
There's a pew Bible there if you want one. They're blue and small print, but get your face close enough, you can read it. In Ephesians chapter 3, the Apostle Paul is writing a prayer for the people of Ephesians. And in its context, he's just talked about how the mystery of the gospel has been revealed to the people of Ephesus. And that's not such a big deal to us 2,000 years later, but in the first century, this was enormous. God showed up to the Ephesians, and, and his gospel was preached to the Ephesians. They came to Jesus in the city of Ephesus, and a church was formed. And it was a big deal because up until this time, largely, the church was Jewish. It was only people who were ethnically and religiously Jewish who were welcomed into the kingdom and family of God, and suddenly God's extending it to people who were Gentiles, who are far from God, who are most of us, or Gentiles. And Paul is just still in awe and wonder of this fact, that God is extending it to people who don't look like the people God's extended it to before, that God's extending it to people that he didn't rescue in the past. He's extending it to people who are serving foreign gods and walking broken ways and living contrary to God's ways and and love. And he says, "I, I love these people so much. I want them a part of my kingdom too. And Paul is just overwhelmed by this. And he sees this vision this vision that God has for the world, that all would come to the loving knowledge of Christ, that none should perish, but that all should have everlasting life, and that all should come through this narrow gateway into this abundant life on the backside of Jesus, where we walk in the fullness of his grace in lives that are full and in love and in goodness. And so Paul says this, chapter 3, verse 14, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length, and the height, and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge. It's not just about knowledge. It's about knowing the love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we could ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church, And in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, that includes us, forever and ever. And everybody said, amen. Four quick things about this passage. When Paul saw God's vision for the Ephesians, it prompted him to do a few things. I mean, first of all, you've got somebody that sees the vision. Paul saw the vision for the Ephesians that God has. Tim Keller writes in his book on marriage, um, it's called The Meaning of Marriage. He writes this, this, this little phrase about what love looks like, what Christian love looks like in marriage. But I think this applies outside of marriage. So single people, this is for you too. That the image and the vision of love in marriage, or here, gotta get this right. So within the Christian vision of marriage, here's what it means to fall in love or to love somebody else. It is to look at another person and get a glimpse of what God is creating and to say, I see who God is making you. And it excites me. I want to be a part of that. I want to partner with you and God and the journey you are taking to his throne. And when we get there, I will look at your magnificence. When we get there, I will look at your magnificence. 
And I will say, I always knew you could be like this. I got glimpses of it on earth, but now look at you. That's what Paul saw for the Ephesians. He got this glimpse of what they could become. And he called it out of them, and he prayed for them, and he sought it for them, and he sent resources to them, and he sent leaders to them, and he trained them, and he called them higher, and he rebuked them, and he loved them because he saw what they could become. He saw what they could become. Seeing God's best for one another will lead us to give our very best to one another, to treat each other with grace and with kindness. And what will become is what poet, um, I lost my place here, the poet uh, Bayard Rustin, he calls angelic troublemakers. Because we're going to be poking and prodding each other's lives, saying, I know what you can be. I know who you can become. I know what you're going to be when you stand before God. That's the purpose of vision, to have vision for one another. We seek God's vision for our marriages, for our relationships, for our lives, knowing that we're going to miss the mark occasionally, but through God's power one day, we will be able to say, I knew it. I knew it. But until then, we dream and we pray and we give our very best effort. Second thing about this, this vision that Paul saw, the vision revealed to Paul the need of the Ephesians. The vision was so big that Paul knew that neither the Ephesians nor himself could ever accomplish it without the power of God. So it drove him to his knees. It drove him to write this amazing letter. It drove him to invest and to give his life for them. They needed strength to reflect God's love through their daily lives, to have a vision beyond just bumping through life. And we need that same sort of going to the feet of God on behalf of one another if we're going to see the vision of God come to life in our lives. So this passage is an invitation to look at the person next to you and to say, this vision that God has for you is so beautiful, I'm going to pray for you because you can't do it alone. Will you pray for me? Uh, one of the nuns at, the, at the, the Catholic church there, she's like, pray for us. She's always like, pray for us because we need it. This is going on in my life. Pray for us. Remember us in your prayers. Reading a book with C.S. Lewis in it, and C.S. Lewis is talking and, and, and talking to this guy, and at the end of his letters, he always asks, he just says, remember me in your prayers as I remember you every night. I wake up in the middle of the night and I remember you. Remember each other in your prayers because God has something for each of us here and we need his power. Three, Paul recognized that this vision was not a vision of what they needed to be right now, but where they were going and they were not there yet. They hadn't arrived. They hadn't even fully grasped this vision that God has from, and that's why he prays that they would have the power and the strength to grasp the height, the depth, the length of God's love being revealed in them and to them in the world. There was this picture of where they were heading, but the road ahead was still long. I've heard it said that if vision isn't bigger than your, your sight, then it's not from God. I personally find that if vision seems outlandishly impossible, it's kind of demotivating. I'm never going to be like that. I'm never going to get there. But the truth is, it doesn't matter how big the vision is. None of us are going to reach any vision without the power and the strength of God. We are human. We are broken. And not only that, we're fragile because we're prone to continue to break. So we move forward toward the vision that God has for our life, seeking his power and that it would be made perfect in us. In our marriages and in our relationships, we need to become what Bill Gates calls and I love this, impatient optimists. 
Bill Gates, impatient optimist. We went to the Bill Gates Museum in Seattle, and that's like, we are a group of impatient optimists. And what that means is we have a vision of the future, and it's not coming fast enough. It's an optimistic vision of the future. It's what God sees. We want to create this. We want to see it happen. And, and we can live in a place where it's like, oh, that'll never happen. We just give up. But in the strength and the power of Christ, all things are possible. And so we're optimistic as Christians. That's who we are meant to be. Optimistic about our lives. Optimistic about the church. Optimistic about each other. And then we get impatient. And we start to work to make it happen, to join what God's doing. We believe that things can be better. We believe that we can be more in love one year from now than we are at this moment. We believe that things can grow, that we can grow in transformation and in God's grace, and we can walk in these things, yet we're impatient for that love to grow and mature. We're impatient to see it happen. We're impatient for our witness to be bright, and so we work to make it happen, and that is the role of works in faith. It doesn't save us, but we're impatient optimists, and we're moving toward what God has for us with all of our strength. And lastly, in this vision that Paul is praying about, I think that Paul only sees a part of it. He doesn't pretend to fully know or fully believe that what he sees as the vision is the vision fully from God. You're looking at your life and you're like, oh, this is what I'd like to be. I want you to know you only see in part. You only see a little bit. You only know a little bit of what it's going to become. See, Paul writes this letter. He could not imagine that 2,000 years later, some Yahoo in another part of the world that doesn't even exist in his mind, in a theater, which what even is a theater with red, uncomfortable seats, would be preaching on this simple prayer that he wrote down for people far, far away from him. He can't even imagine that. But he knows that God is able to do more than he can imagine. And so he prays anyway. He pursues anyway. We pray for more than what we can ask or imagine. One of the first uh, youth sermon series I ever did when I was a youth pastor was just called Imagine. It was just based on that prayer. To the God who is able to do vastly more than we could ask or imagine. And I said to my students, I said, guys, it's time for you to start imagining what God could do. Because he could do more than that. It's time to fire up our imaginations and our dreams about what we could be and what God's kingdom could do in this world. What your life could be beyond the trailer park that you're stuck in, beyond your alcoholic father, beyond the abusive mother, beyond the unemployment, beyond the grades. Imagine what God could do for you and what God could do through you. And know that it is only a part. But also know that he who began a good work in you, will be faithful to complete it. You see now in part, but then you will know in full. You see now in part, I saw glimpses of you, saw glimpses of this in you. When you stand before God, I knew it. This is more than I could have imagined, but I knew it. I saw it in you. I look forward to that day. When we stand together before God and I look out at this congregation standing that, that Heidi and I have had the privilege for 10 years to shepherd. And we come before God together, and I'm like, wow, Doug. I knew it. I knew it. Wow, Sherry. I knew it. Wow, Luis. I knew it. Every one of you is special. Every one of you is unique. No two of you are the same. 
And just as God's vision from Moses was different than it was from Esther, was different from Ruth, was different from Peter, was different from Junia. If you don't know who she is, you need to find out. She's a female apostle. If you don't know about the God's vision for Lydia, so too is it different from each and every single one of us, this thing that he has for us, this dream. No two marriages are the same. No two friendships are the same. And every one of them is unique. And God has a vision for all of them. And he is working out his will and his plans and his ways in them. And so I want to give you a moment to think about these four encouragements and which one you need to hold on to as you press on toward God's best for your life. I'll reread them so that you can hear them if I can find them. They're here somewhere. There they are. Four encouragements from Ephesians chapter 4. First of all, God has a vision for your life. It's not God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a dream for you. You might be living a life right now that's like, I don't know if God has anything for me. He does. and He wants you to discover it. Number two, when you discover that vision, it's going to reveal your need for the power of God, and you need to seek him with all of your heart. You might be like, wow, that vision God has for me is too big. Can't do it. Give up now. The Holy Spirit wants to come and empower you to walk in the fullness of God's abundant life. Number three, we aren't there yet. It's easy to get, it's easy to get frustrated with your progress. It's too slow. But God is faithful, and he is working it out in you, and you are not there yet. You are not yet who you will be. And you need to walk in patience and in grace with yourself and with other people. And number four, to understand that what you think you see as a vision of your life isn't the full picture. God has so much more. And you can trust in God's goodness to give you all that he has for you. We're going to take one minute and think about which of those encouragements you needed to hear this morning. Just write it down. And then I'm going to close with a prayer and a blessing. Amen. Remember, your vision is going to change. It's not what it was when you were a kid. You're going to have to write and rewrite and rethink and revision, revisions and revision over the course of your life as God expands that in you. But above all, live a life worth living. Sing a song worth singing, an anthem worth repeating. The beauty of community is you guys influence me in ways you don't know. I mean, Emma's a great example. She comes home and plays a song, and look what I did. I brought it to you, and now she's influenced you. Uses ways that your life influences other people. You have no idea. God is using you in ways that you will know when you stand before him, and that's going to be the other side of it. Wow, Doug, look at you. Whoa, I can't believe the influence I had in your life. Whoa, I can't. Look at all the influence you had. It's going to be so amazing. I had a really great idea, and I didn't get this on the screen in time. I was going to have you read this passage to one another. So that's my challenge to you. Go home and read this passage to somebody else. But I'm going to read it to you. I'll read it over you as my prayer for you for this new year. 
You guys good with that? Why don't you stand up? Because we want to put ourselves in a posture of receiving. This isn't from me. This is from God this morning. Because I see what God is doing in you. and Because I see what God is capable of doing through you. And because I believe that he has more for you than you could ever imagine or ask or think. For that reason, I bow my knees before the Father in heaven, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And that according to the riches of his glory, that he would grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all of the saints in this room and all of the saints in this city and all of the saints in this university and all of the saints across time and history, that you would have power with all of the saints to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge and that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all I could ever ask or imagine or think, according to the power that is at work in you and in me, to him be the glory in this church and in Jesus throughout all the generations, forever and ever. Amen. Jesus loves you. If you haven't heard that this morning, you might need to go listen to the podcast. Jesus loves you. And Heidi and Heidi, too. It's a bonus. The icing on the cake. Go in the grace of the Lord to walk, uh, live a life worth living, and to sing a song worth singing. Amen.